My guest for this episode is stand-up comedian, author, and mental health advocate, Dave Chawner. Now, Dave has a fascinating story. Dave battled with anorexia, which is not spoken about a lot, particularly within men. So Dave shared his story, and I'll tell you what, it was not as I expected. Absolutely fascinating and eye-opening. This episode was filled to the brim with advice, mental health and some questionable jokes you could say this is a great episode so let's get started so i think it kind of went through phases because for the first like year to 18 months people like my mom were like crying and screaming like you're anorexic and i was like well they're obviously just a fucking idiot because that's not why i am and then it took me a bit of while a time to realize and for the next sort of like say three to five real, uh, years, I kind of dipped in and out of it when I needed. So when things were a little bit stressful, it was nice to focus on something that I can control. When things felt a little bit overwhelming, it was nice to have something that was a shortcut to feeling good and releasing those kind of endorphins. No, I don't know. I don't know enough about you. Welcome to the Schofield Stories Podcast, unmasking masculinity and mental health. Join me, Calm Schofield, as I work to strike the stigma surrounding men suffering from mental health. Every episode, a new inspiring guest will share his story. And this episode is no different. Welcome to the Schofield Stories. Let's get started. So joining me on the show is Dave Chawner. Now, we've had a lovely chat off camera and we probably could have kept chatting for even longer. So it's about time we get started. Welcome to the show, Dave. Thank you very much. I, f- I feel like I'm going to really enjoy this. Oh, definitely. So why don't you introduce yourself to my listener a little bit? Like, who is Dave Chawner? Who is Dave Chawner? He's a professional idiot that doesn't get dressed until far too late. So I suppose, uh, but my agent will be saying, I'm uh, an author, a stand-up comic, uh, a presenter, and a mental health campaigner. And I sort of use comedy in order to talk about mental health and specifically my own experience of having anorexia, but also to try and make people realise that like mental health isn't all about mental illness. It's about celebrating good mental well-being <clears throat> yeah absolutely and that's why i wanted you on the show because the whole point of the schofield stories is to encourage speaking and talking not necessarily in a negative way but just by having two men having a conversation like we are that is promoting men's mental health in my eyes yeah and the weird thing is i don't know if you find this but ju- just talking like finding the words is very difficult especially with mental health so it's sort of an analogy i always give is like if someone said to like if i had to go to the doctor and said i've got pain in my stomach they'd say is it's sharp throbbing localized if i've got a pain in my brain i can never really i don't really have any you know words it's just all noises it's like well it's a little bit mm, it's not oh it's kind of like uh, and then they're just like he's having a breakdown so it's difficult yeah it, it is it's very difficult to find the words particularly if you're not too sure what's going on in your own head that makes Compl- it 10 times harder. Who is? I mean, this is the weird thing. Like, I think a lot of the time you can notice that other people are possibly having a down day because you've got that perspective, but you live in your own head every single day. So it's just kind of like weird because you wouldn't expect to notice that like, so the paint in your flat has started to fade if you're living in it every single day. You don't have that yeah. distance away. And that's why it's so mental health is so difficult, I think. Yeah, definitely. And that's, I've never thought of it like that. I, I like that analogy about the flat, as I've always said, but I got a dog, is you don't notice the smell of your dog until other people come in and complain about the smell of your dog. Very, very good part. I have to ask at this juncture, what type of dog? Right. I don't know. And that's not being be an idiot, but she's a rescue dog. We got her from R- Romania. So she like, was born on the street. So she's like a prop. But you know when you imagine what a scruffy mongrel street dog looks like that's it basically oh, oh this breaks my i love dogs oh my god and dogs are brilliant for mental health oh yeah yeah she's just she'll always listen oh, 
so cute. Well, I'm on this thing. We we wanted to get a dog, but where we live with those horrible people live in London, and we live like Harry Potter underneath the stairs, but we pay sort of like over a grand for it a month. So we couldn't get a dog because that'd be like completely uh, irresponsible. But we joined, have you heard of this app, Borrow My Doggy? I haven't, but I'm really intrigued now. (laughs) Brilliant. It's basically like Tinder for dogs. So it matches up people that have dogs with people that want dogs. And you just walk other people's dogs for free. And it's it's amazing because especially being... Uh, you know a bloke I couldn't you know sort of the only other time that I'm ever going to wander around in a park on my own people are probably going to call the police but like if you've (laughs) got like a dog then you chat to people you get to we've got this like wonderful family down the road that like helps us walk their dog and they've got like a seven bedroom house next to the mayor of London and they just let us live there for two weeks and it was like Instead, they've got like a badminton court in their backyard and they've got a table tennis table. So we just met so many people through it. But honestly, dogs and like Alfie, the little uh, cavachon that we look after, he's just so good for our mental health. He's brilliant. Yeah, it's, it's strange. I'm just having that dog as a companion can be a massive coping mechanism without you even realising sometimes. Huge. And I'm actually writing a, a show at the moment called underdog and it's all about how essentially dogs are better than humans and i i absolutely you know agree with that and i think oh, dogs yeah. are more likes than humans because like one of my mates got a puppy a couple of months ago and everyone's like oh my god show me a photo whereas like if you know if anyone has a baby i don't i never want to see one of those photos and also <laughs> they say that dogs can help improve your mental health i've never read a single article that says that having a kid can help improve your mental health either so i do oh. think that dogs are much better than humans i have no arguments against that at all <laughs> i really don't so yeah see we're really covering you know the hardest of subjects in this episode you can tell yeah i like that one question i really like as well i'm gonna spin this back at you if you were a dog what sort of dog would you be oh well my old dog my last dog was a beagle and yeah i'd have to be he was full of energy he escaped all the time like we would have to have fences taller than me to get him out to start getting out and so i'd probably be a beagle but the, the one thing i don't like about being a beagle is people would refer to him as a basset. And obviously a basset is the longer, fatter beagle. So he did not... I say he was happy being called a basset. I was happy when someone called him a basset to me. It wasn't him at all, was it? Let's be fair. He didn't know. <laughs> people fat-shamed him, and you got really yeah. embarrassed about him. Oh, that's so brilliant. <laughs> what, about, what about you? What dog would you be? Which is the question I never thought I would ask on this podcast. I mean, hitting the hard, uh, hard topics. I, I would love to be a corgi, right? Yeah. But I don't, I don't think I'm that. I'd probably be a pug, just something, <laughs> yeah. just like a little bit dense, wandering around. I'm not a looker, so just you know, kind of wandering around. And also, I do snore as well, which most pugs do. Well, there we are. I, uh, this is why I said off camera. I don't plan episodes. <laughs> So before we leave the dogs completely, what advice would you give to any listeners who are debating whether to get a dog or not? Depending on a dog. I mean, that's a that's a million dollar question because I think you can we wanted a dog so badly. But the thing the biggest thing that I would say is you can read all the books, you can watch all the videos, you can talk to all of the owners, but don't forget that every single dog has a different personality. So when we looked at getting a dog, <clears throat> I think one of the things that we didn't realize was that you've actually got to go and visit them like three or four times to make sure because this dog that we nearly got had uh five or six brothers or sisters and we had we were lucky that the the sort of family that let her have let us have her for a weekend um we realized that she needed other dogs around and i think also that's that idea as well of saying to the breeder can we have 
him or her for a finite period just to see how she adjusts because there are certain things like separation anxiety wanting other dogs around whether they're too um playful whether they don't like men or women or they don't like kids so I'd, I'd say sort of give it a test run and get to know that specific dog rather than focusing on reading about specific breeds yeah definitely i completely agree with that now then let's get back on to you I don't know. I asked Greg, who is Dave Chawner? And we just spent 10 minutes talking about dogs. I'm just not happened. But so you're, I don't want to say you're known for having anorexia, but that doesn't sound good. But that was sort of one of the challenges that you went through. And instead of using it as a challenge, you have now wrote about it. You've talked openly about it. So why don't you share a bit of insight into where this all sprouted from, you could say? Yeah, I mean, another really, really good question. I mean, God knows really where it's bowed from. Because one of the things that's weird is that all of the sort of mental health stories that I, I tended to read <laughs> always started from people with some sort of childhood trauma or that their moms like beat them or they were, you know, essentially in the cast, you know, of yeah. Annie and, and it was terrible. And they were stuck up chimneys from the age of six months. And I didn't have that. I had a great childhood. I had some amazing friends an incredible school and a very loving family, but it kind of like the anorexia developed rather than began. It was something exactly like you say earlier on with like, you don't realize that, you know, your sort of mental health might be dipping. And I didn't realize that the anorexia was developing. And it started off as, you know, sort of an obsession with uh, calories. So I tried to reduce my calories and I'd, I'd get down to X calories a day. And then that number would steadily drop. And then I became obsessed with um, exercising and, you know, the sort of, the, the sort of two runs a day became, sorry, two runs a week became three runs a week. And then it became swimming and then it became walking. So uh, and then the weighing, which, you know, again, that one, I was like weighing myself sort of five, six times a day. I was like leaving school, but because it developed rather than began, that made it really, really hard to track. And a lot of people said to me, I think you've got anorexia, you know, you, you seem really anorexic. Um, then I just thought that was far too melodramatic to explain what I was going through. So it didn't take me until I was like 23 to realize that there was something going on. So it goes to show that nothing is really set in stone. You know, there's no black and white. There's, so from your perspective, you thought, oh, you can't have anorexia because it developed. You know, it wasn't so much you looked in a mirror and thought you were really fat when you weren't or anything like that. It just happened over time. And also a really, like, this is a difficult point to raise, but anecdotally, I've spoken to a lot of people that <laughs> feel it. <clears throat> Sorry, got a cough at the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, that I, I, in, I enjoyed it. And this is something that whenever you talk about anorexia, you always get these pictures of the head clutcher or there was black and white of people, but I really enjoyed it. I got a buzz out of it because when you step on those scales and you see your weight drop and when you start to restrict more and more, then you kind of feel all sort of a bit flighty and a bit kind of like punch drunk. And I didn't see the long-term detriment i only just saw that short-term gain of feeling you know on top of things feeling in control enjoying that and it was almost kind of a sector like look at a well-stocked fridge and say no i'm not going to eat that and that kind of powering self-control and th the problem is because people don't talk about anorexia like that then i think a lot of people don't relate to it because yeah. when I was at school, I remember we talked about drugs and everyone was like, oh, drugs are bad. They'll end up, you know, and, but no one ever said, well, actually, if you do smoke a spliff, then for like half an hour, you'll feel like this, which for half an hour is nice. But if you keep on smoking, then you will get paranoia. You're likely to get schizophrenia. You'll start getting slit, you know, insomnia, all of these kind of things. So if you don't look at that short term benefit, then people think that those long-term detriments won't happen to them. I think it's fair to say that when you think of anorexia, I think like I said, it's not talked about, but I think it's even less talked about in men as well. Yeah, definitely, which is odd because the first ever case of anorexia was a man, the first medical diagnosis we have. 
And that was actually back in the 1600s. So we've known about this for ages. Uh, people like Lord Byron, uh, the romantic poet, he had anorexia. And there's people like Russell Brand, even Zayn Malik came out, Christopher Eccleston. So it is something that I think we're getting better at realizing, but perhaps it goes back to your earlier point and entirely the point of the podcast is that it's just not talked about. So with your experiences and your story with anorexia, how long were you, I don't want to say battling with it as such, but how long it's hard to word, isn't it? But again, it's a hard, it's, as we talk about it, it's hard to get the words right. But what time period would you say your experience happened? And is it that you were in your 20s when it sort of started to notice it seriously? But when did it begin, maybe? So I think it kind of went through phases because for the first like year to 18 months, people like my mom were like crying and screaming, like, you're anorexic. And I was like, well, they're obviously just a fucking idiot because that's not why I am. And then it took me a bit of while, a time to realize. And for the next sort of like, say, three to five real, uh, years, I kind of dipped in and out of it when I needed. So when things were a little bit stressful, it was nice to focus on something that I can control. When things felt a little bit overwhelming, it was nice to have something that was a shortcut to feeling good and releasing those kind of endorphins and then for the next sort of two to three years after that i very heavily relapsed ironically when i started writing about it and i knew exactly what i was doing and i knew that anorexia has the highest mortality rate of any mental illness and it became a passive suicide um, attempt so i knew that i was going to die from it and i wanted to speed up certain ways that i could die from it the more humane rather than the full organ shut down which is horrible um and it was only when i got like to the sort of you know severely clinically anorexic i got diagnosed i was like oh we've got to rebuild everything up so it kind of went in a bit of an arc through stages that is really interesting and talking about anorexia in this light as opposed to the negative it's bad has that impacted more people if anything who maybe aren't fully aware that they're going through it like you yourself were mate absolutely like the amount of people that come up to me and there is a huge guilt involved in something that like you know puts so much strain on families friends different relationships and there's a huge guilt of people for the first time going, well actually you're right like i do enjoy this and i'm all there and i'm sorry about that you know so people do get uncomfortable um about that and, and the fact that you can acknowledge that is is sort of real progress i think but also something that someone said to me is that you can easily uh, you can just as easily drown in a puddle as you can in a lake so the anorexia is not to do with your body type or with numbers it's to do with the severity of the impact that it has on that person so would you still consider yourself now to be anorexic? And I'm only asking that because I've interviewed a range of people, and one of them was from Australia, and he was addicted to drugs for 20 years. And even though he's been clean for years now, he still considered himself an addict and said he always will. Well, I, I kind of, I heard it the other day and I thought this was really lovely. Someone said, um, I was with someone and they said, I've retired from the anorexia. I just thought it was a really lovely way that they're, I've given it up. I'm, I'm letting someone else take it over. I kind of, the way that I feel about it is I feel further away from the anorexia now than I have been in many, many years. I feel like I've been given such incredible treatment that to relapse now would seem selfish because for me, it was never even about the eating or the food. It was about the stuff underneath that I was trying to run away from. But also, you know, I don't think that ever completely caveats you for, yeah, I've found certain situations, stuff, for example, lockdown, when you're surrounded by food with limited exercise and so much uncertainty, then even I've been like, oh, this is not ideal. So, but I, I feel furthest away from it and, you know, hopefully I would never sort of relapse. So have you had any times when you've been close to relapsing or when you had thoughts of it at all? I think like, I think I saw someone commented 
on my appearance uh, and that was quite difficult and that was quite challenging and I think that that sort of set off a lot of certain things in motion. I also think like when I started to go through therapy I had like constant battles with my therapist because I was kind of like you know, I said, well, I know this thing works. You're like, the, the problem is, and this is where the kind of comedy comes in, is that when everyone talks about recovery and getting better, they talked about taking the anorexia away. Nobody talked about giving anything back. So I've got everything to lose. I've got nothing to gain. So why the fuck would I recover? So this is the sort of like that, you know, again, with those words and the importance of getting it right in order to say you will gain X, Y and Z back rather than you'll lose this one thing that you used to make sense of everything. So it's sort of like, I can't remember the quote exactly, but it's about if you're not getting the answers you want, just you're asking the wrong questions or something like that. You know, you can't keep asking yourself the wrong question, expect the answers you want. I think that makes sense. But I don't know. Completely. I know the quote now. It's, um, is it something like stupidity is repeating the same process, but expecting a different outcome? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And I I sort of thought that kind of relates because if we're talking about, in this instance, anorexia in the same way and not looking, as you said, at what you can get from, what you can give back, then how are you going to get a different outcome? Which is why I've now, and I'm so excited that one of the few <coughs> good things of lockdown has been I had time and space and the opportunity to work on uh, something that I've been thinking about for ages. So I've come up with a six-week comedy course specifically aimed at people overcoming something. Uh, and I think like at first it started out with people with eating disorders, then I opened it up to mental health, and now I just think people that want to use comedy to overcome stuff. Because like doing comedy and specifically stand up, you're literally you're providing confidence, you're providing communication. It's also a brilliant opportunity instead of trying to fit in to stand out and celebrate that and literally provides a platform for people to stand up for themselves. Yeah, sounds brilliant. And well, my next question is, can I sign up for it? Well, bless you. I'm I'm still working at the moment. I wish so. We're uh, there's a couple of universities that are interested. I'm working with Beat Mind and the Mental Health Foundation, doing sort of tasting courses. But I suppose uh, the best thing is like to keep in touch. I've uh, I'll be like tweeting about it from my Twitter at Dave Chorna when it eventually goes. Shameless little plug there. But yeah, I'm still working on it, and it's it's been so exciting and so much fun to do. Yeah, definitely and have you found what, what what has it been like you know when you've started work on it and hearing these people's stories if anything through comedy hearing people's stories is like <clears throat> it's a double-edged sword really because when i first started doing the show about my anorexia using comedy people started coming up to me with love and with sharing and stuff. But they started sort of sharing these like really dramatic stories about people that are minutes away from death, people that weighed less than a bag of crisps. And it made me kind of feel like a fraud, like a failure, like, oh my God, I'm not anorexic enough, which sort of set off a huge uh, relapse. Well, I think that was, you know, mainly because there was a lot of unresolved stuff that I had. But one of the biggest takeaways of doing comedy around eating disorders and mental health and general vulnerability is honestly how accepting people are. And obviously there's going to be a couple of, you know, um, caveats to that. There's going to be the, you know, every, every rule has an exception, but honestly, nine times out of 10 easily, as soon as you kind of let down that guard and you show people that you're not competing, you are not a threat, it's incredible how many of the most unexpected, even like, you know, even recently, you know, a couple of, you know, proper meatheads, like, oh, I'll go to the gym, all right, doing, like proper geezers. Um, and one of them, so I used to work for this radio station for builders. We don't have time to go into it yet. And I'm 
trying to erase that period of my life from my mind. But all of the guys I went there were fun. They were like, proper Essex, that's all right. And some of them, one of them saw, because um, I did um, I did an interview on Lorraine, and they saw it, and it was like, oh, I didn't, I didn't realize you had an erection. And I was like, oh, well, you know, sort of like, yeah. And it was like, I'm a bit, I'm a bit worried about one of my mates, right? Because he goes out. And it was just really interesting that, like, if you were blindly stereotypingly profiling, there is no way that this kind of like Towie style apocalypse of blokes would ever talk about that each and every one did. And it was really interesting. It sounds it, but something you touched upon there was how you felt a bit like a fraud because other people had anorexia in a different way. Now, I can relate to that in the sense that I've been told that because I don't step to as much as someone else, then why am I worrying about it? And like you said, that has made me relapse and my speech get 10 times worse, but I feel like I'm making a thing out of nothing. So how do you find that? I'm not going to lie. That is, that is incredibly, incredibly difficult. And I think guilt is a very pervasive thing that actually manifests in so many different ways um i think that it is about it's it's really important to remember that it is about impact rather than you know sort of severity or things that you can measure and i think that's why i think that's why mental health is so difficult because physical health always deals in numbers get your ten thousand steps eat five fruit and veg a day get vaccinated once a year whereas to keep mentally healthy you you can't do what like three mindfulness exercise that doesn't work like that and i think in terms of getting rid of that fraud thing it's really difficult but one of the few things that i have noticed of late and i'm not going to pretend that i'm good at it but actually just being honest and it's really interesting how even stuff outside of the disorders i mean like comedy is an incredibly competitive industry because there's only so many comedy clubs most of them are closed down now and there's only so many spots and it's been really interesting with people that i see on social media now got their own channel four shows or they've just done live at the apollo or they're doing mock the week i kind of go you know what like i genuinely mean this i am so chuffed for you but i am a little bit jealous and honestly I, I said that to a mate the other day and they turned around and went to be honest mate it's not not everything is as it seems on social media i think we all have that that we feel like we're not good enough we feel we're a fraud and that people are doing better or worse than us but actually that is so that honesty of like actually just you know uh, sort of acknowledging that elephant in the room i think is so powerful yeah absolutely and from my experience at least the more open and honest you are about yourself that encourages open and honesty and that brings into a loop about what you talk about with the you know Essex lads builders you were open and honest and they what's the word reciprocated reciprocate I can't remember the word yeah and so, so they were open and honest too this is what, like, this is what I've never understood. So I've never been a laddie bloke. I've never, like, really fitted in. And comedy was always, humour was uh, really just a reason for people to like me. Because I was never sporty in school. I was never intelligent. I never, to be honest, I've never been good at pranks or anything like that. So, sort of, humour has always been my, you know, sort of, uh, foil that you know I can try and get in with people but I just remember like being as like I'm, I'm much older now and it's terrible and I'm not saying this is good and it is awful but I'm still of the generation where people used to say uh, you're gay as if it's you know something naff or whatever mm. and I just I never understood why more people did this and like people go oh what are you Dave are you gay and I just like yeah, well well maybe I am and people <laughs> just had no like once you accept that they, they you know uh, you know the, the classic one was oh drop your gay card and I go oh thanks very much I didn't want to lose that because I'd be really and like <laughs> you just can't move after that and I think Sometimes we can accidentally get involved in these combats that we don't even realise that we're fighting. But as soon as you can kind of like step out of that and realise, you know, this is silly, then there is nowhere more to push. Yeah, absolutely. Disagree. So has comedy always been something you've enjoyed then? 
it's interesting because we comedy in and of itself i i didn't really know that it was a thing i remember when i was 16 and one of my mates kept on talking about this guy called peter k and i was like oh uh, and he said oh you've got to get you've got to get his dvd so um well no, not dvd vhs then oh. christ so this was when dinosaurs were still on the planet and we <clears throat> i remember some our cousins came over and we watched it and just having a group of those like my two cousins, my sister and me in the room, uh, we watched it, just that feeling of euphoria, just like so much fun. And then when I went away to university, they had this thing called the Laughter Lounge, which was a comedy club that ran every two weeks. And we saw people like Russell Howard, Michael McIntyre, Stuart Francis. Uh, and it was those were, that was before they were big. So it was like three quid. So on a student budget, we could afford it. And oh my God, it was just incredible. And one of the things that I loved about it wasn't necessarily the laugh, that was great. It wasn't necessarily the socializing, which again was brilliant. But the thing that I loved about it was the balls to the wall honesty that these people weren't pretending to be anything else. Russell Howard was always uh, a, a stupid boy he was always being very childish you know if you saw jack d he was always going to be surly if you saw alan carr he was always going to be camp and i just thought it was amazing that these people 100 percent accepted and knew themselves and actually used comedy to talk about really 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 dark things and i saw that as an amazing coping mechanism was there a time when you actually expected to be doing comedy like you are now or did it just again happen really see now even that is a really good point and it kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier on of like you i always thought that there would be a time when you do one gig and you think i have arrived but as i've got older and a lot uglier I kind of realized that you never arrive at life. It's something that happens to you. So if I'm honest and without sounding self-promoting or arrogant, yeah, when I was 18, 19, if I could look back and say, you will be earning your living, doing stand-up and presenting, etc., I would have been like, oh my God, that's brilliant. Whereas because the, the day in, day out, I've got to book more gigs or prepare for that show or write to that person, you never really get a chance to stand back and go, oh, that's, that's pretty cool. And that also compounded with the fact that there is always more that you could do you know i do the stand-ins for mock the week but i'm not on the panel and then if i did mock the week then i'd be like oh well i want to do live with the apollo and i do live with the apollo and i'm like well actually i want to headline glastonbury you know it's all of those yeah. little things you never arrive and i think that's why as they say comparison is the thief of joy and it's really difficult to appreciate what you've got without being lazy so would you say you appreciate what you got no, I've oh got no. No, absolutely. I'm the worst. This is the thing. I mean, I know I should, and people keep on saying you've got to write gratitude journals and blah, blah, blah. And I'm trying to be better at it. But look, I've got, you know, I've got a very, I'm very, very lucky that I've got a very easy life. I don't live in a third world country. I'm not scrounging to try and get food so that I don't survive, which is ironic based on the anorexia. I don't have some sort of debilitating disease but i think it's part of living in a capitalist society isn't it that you're always looking for more and part of the underdog show that i'm trying to write is trying to be grateful about looking at what you've got rather than looking what you don't have but it's always easier to advise other people than take it on yourself yeah absolutely and with that idea of you know advising people you're of course and author as well you know you've written a book how did that come about uh my advice said never write a fucking book i just kind of i that came about because the the year and i don't want to sound ungrateful but the year that i did that first show all about anorexia was uh i was very lucky it, it won a little award and then we took it on tour lovely stuff and then a pro uh, publisher approached me 
and said, uh, look, there's a gap in the market for the first male book on anorexia. Uh, and I pointed out it's not a very big gap. And uh, he didn't laugh and it got really awkward. <laughs> and they asked me to write this book uh, to sort of, um, you know, help people. And one of the things that really gets me is like, stories are really powerful. I completely agree with that. And I completely understand that. But I think at the moment, especially with mental health, what we're doing is we're sort of sharing so many stories that more and more people resonate with, more and more yeah. people now than ever before think, oh, I might have this challenge, but we're not providing help. And as the Tory government consistently increases its stranglehold on the NHS and tries to get rid of any resources, I didn't want to just share my story. I wanted to share coping mechanisms and actual tangible things that you can do rather than those you know airy concepts of what can you do oh mindfulness you're like what do you even mean by that what does that even what does that even mean so in the book i decided to do because i nearly walked away from the contract several different times but the only way that i could sort of reconcile doing it was to write the book that i needed when i was 17 and when i was 17 i wanted coping mechanisms but i also wanted people to treat me like a person rather than a patient because as soon as people found out mental illness no one joked with me no one played any ranks on me people stopped you know so kept on double guessing speaking really hushed muted tones and that made me feel like a freak and actually that was probably one of the most isolating things ever which came from a place of love so yeah those are the kind of two things i wanted but honestly writing a book's terrible how long was the process of actually writing and editing and all all that involved? Well, it's it's interesting because it took about eighteen months, and uh, that was you know really long. And, and I'm really you know used to especially writing comedy. You're very uh, used to. Um, just knowing if something works there and then, you know, if it doesn't get a laugh, you know, unless you can reword that, it's probably shit, get rid of it. Wow. Whereas with the book, it takes ages and so much honing. And I, there was a day of my life where I sort of uh, spent poring over paper sizes. And I was like, Jesus, I feel like, I feel like David Brent out of the office comparing <laughs> samples. Either. So it, it's a very odd process, but yeah, it took a, a good like year and a half. Yeah. Again, it, it just seems, it must have been a bit strange. Like when you said you, you were turning your head out over paper sizes and this and that. Did you ever stop and think, how did I end up here? Hey, oh, God, mate, all the time. I yeah. mean, that's, that's my life. Is they, but I also kind of, I never forget when uh, people wrote, um, when the guys acted in Lord of the Rings, I never forget one of the red carpet speeches I heard, I thought was really, really interesting. And they said that like, actually, it took about four to six years to edit Lord of the Rings, by which time half of the cast had moved on and they'd done other things. So when the film came out, they hadn't seen each other for a while. It was like, oh, this is odd. And that's exactly like it is with a book. It took so long for it to get published that I finished it in the uh, December, maybe even November of the year before. And it came out in the June. And then there was all of this press and interview opportunities. And people were asking me about the book. And I was like, I can't even remember what I wrote, to be <laughs> honest. And, and I also did something that if anyone is writing a book, I would strongly advise against. I was stupid enough for each section. I decided to do a, um, <clears throat> a playlist that you could listen to. So oh, that'd be quite cool. It really dates the book. And the book's like two years old now. And I've got literally, I get sporadic emails from people that have read it. And someone was like, oh, I really like this. But the music's really old. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> what kind of music have you suggested? You know, what a few of your playlist um, well, advice? <laughs> I personally think the best year for music was 2007, which... I mean, it makes me sound so old because there are people that are like well alive now that weren't even born then. But people like, um, I'm a big fan of uh, stuff like uh, the Kooks, the Fratellis, the Automatic. I just think that sort of period of move, uh, uh, music, like you've got Florence of the Machines coming out. You've got people like Just Jack. You've got the Ting Tings, which is a really <laughs> forgotten band. The Wombats. I could go on for ages, but I just loved all of that kind of, grungy indie music i think i heard of two of them so we're doing well 
Oh, that's so funny. Uh, but in my defense, I was seven in 2007. Are you into the cooks or the coop because of she moves in her own way? Of course, that's a tune. The ting I heard of. I've heard of the others, but I can't name a single song by any of them, I don't think. Though. Other than, of course, you know, like, for a machine and that, but that's an exception. I th- I th- I've got a terrible music taste. Even I don't really like my music taste. Like, you know, like, a lot of the time I'll put on a song in a jukebox in a pub and I'll be like, why did you pick this? Um, so, yeah, a music taste, again, is a very, very personal thing. It is, and I'm actually the same. As, I don't know why, I've got a very diverse music taste. There's one minute I'll be singing along to Suspicious Minds by Elvis, then I'll be listening to some very modern rap which i don't really understand but i think i look hard when i'm driving along with my you know i've always wanted me and my mates i remember even when we were teenagers we said we wanted to get like uh, a fiat punto or you know those kind of cars that people zoop up and they put in like subwoofers and like trims yeah. and lights we wanted to do that and then like go around playing mozart or vivaldi and i just <laughs> think that'd be really funny to like kind of just go through and there's some sort of renaissance music playing that'd be brilliant uh, it, it would be, and that would be a great way. Is What I do is a lot of comfort zone challenges to stop caring about what other people think. And driving around with that music blaring would be a perfect way to, of self-acceptance and to not care about what other people think. Yeah, exactly. And that's, it's taken me a long time to do that because I, I, think, I think everyone has a prime age. I think my prime age is going to be at 47. I can't wait to get to that age i just think i will i've always been a really old head like whenever you know people were going out clubbing i always preferred to go to the pub and you know all of those sort of little things so when all of my you know friends were like playing football i just wanted to play chess so i can't wait to get older uh, i understand again as i'm that mate when you're in a club started thinking why am i here the music's too loud, there's too many people, I'm sweating, I'm bored, and I've paid £5 to stand you and get elbowed by everyone around me. I, I hate it. And like, the, the, you know, when people say clubbing, unless it's seal clubbing, no, I'm out. I'm absolutely out. I'm much more of a social drinker. I'd much rather sit in a pub with the football on, with music playing, with a group of mates, having a few pints, and talking at an appropriate level, not shouting over <laughs> music. I, I know I'm literally <laughs> 19 off to university. That's not a good thing to say, but it's true. I'd rather pub, nice talking. But then again, I come from a small town when it's only one nightclub that has what the hell got 14 year olds in. So it's like, you know, your options are limited. <laughs> See, that's the thing. And like, I'm very lucky that when I was a kid, like we talk about mental health and like being yourself. I was very fortunate that like, I remember there was a guy, even when we were 18 uh, and he was called Tom. And uh, whenever I was going out and we used to go to this place called Retros and Reflex and all of these people would drink these Alka-Pops, he would go to the pub on a Friday night with his dad. He would drink bitter which like at that point in time, this is before the whole kind of like craft ale thing. That was like, yeah. you know, it's like the equivalent of going somewhere and just drinking straight brandy, right? So everyone's like, <laughs> and he used to talk about cricket with his dad. And it was just, and because Tom never pretended to be anything else, he was honestly one of the coolest kids in the year because he wasn't pretending. He wasn't playing up to girls or trying to get the new uh, trainers or, or whatever kids do these days. He was just always really old and really himself. And I remember that being such a bewitching thing. Again, in hindsight, like when I was growing up, particularly at the secondary school, I would always think, oh, the people who are more popular can get away with doing stuff like that. And it's <laughs> not that. It's that they are genuinely very self-accepting of who they are. And in hindsight... It's not because they were part and got away with it. It's because that was who they are and they had no qualms about it at all. And I'm 19 and I use the word qualms a lot, which apparently isn't a good thing either. But I like saying the phrase, no qualms. I don't know why, but it's just hindsight, isn't it? How that level of self-acceptance is more powerful than anything else, I think. I think we put so many layers on ourselves as well. And actually, when you start to take them back and actually take them off 
uh, oof, uh, then <clears throat> it, it becomes a lot easier of like, you know, sort of being like, yeah, this is who I am. But I think the million dollar question is finding out who you are. And, and actually for me, part of recovery was that. I, you know, I was, in, I was in therapy for two and a half years and I loved it. And one of the things I loved about it was that I tried terrible things. Like, you know, yeah, I did. I, I, I went clubbing. Um, I tried different art forms. I tried going different places. And of course, there were absolute disasters. But because it was a silly boy project, it was only for a finite amount of time, all of the disasters were quite funny rather than me trying to fit in anywhere. Absolutely. And as, as well as that kind of stuff, what other sort of coping mechanisms did you have with your recovery? And what kind of stuff did you try, whether it was successful or unsuccessful? I think in terms of the food thing, I think reintroducing foods into my diet and eating regularly and stopping weighing really, really helped. But in terms of mental healthy stuff, uh, I intentionally tried to fail at stuff. I had like a real perfectionist uh you know mindset so actually trying to fail at things that were okay to fail at i thought was really good and really interesting i think socializing is really important seeing friends and not necessarily just on a screen i realize that's really difficult now but getting out and about traveling and i think generally one of the biggest coping mechanisms in there is perspective and i think that's why actually a lot of the time that people can get really myopic when they live in cities and one of the uh, coping mechanisms that i use in the book <coughs> is something that i developed when i was uh, when i used to work in an office like my first job after university i worked on a, a little magazine and we were cooped in this little office in a beautiful part of london um but i uh well i used to work for country life magazine and two things i used to do one was i used to go through the housing section of the magazine which is huge and just look at these beautiful houses and i don't know why that just chilled me out uh but also the other one as well that i did that i think is a, a really lovely coping mechanism to give to people as well as if you need a bit of time out but you can't go for a walk around the block for whatever reason I always used to go onto Google Maps, onto Street View, and there's a little place in Cornwall called St. Ives that we always used to go to. And Tenby, I suppose, oh, like in I Wales. Beautiful. And you can, on Street View, you can virtually walk through the... It's not the same as being there. No one's pretending it is. But it's just nice to have a little five minutes out of going like, oh, look at Fetch's, the ice cream shot. Isn't that amazing? And kind of wander around virtually. I've never thought of that. And I think if I knew that at the start of lockdown, it would have been really good. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that is that's true. And it's like you said, it's find new ways around things. Like if you can't go for a walk to clear your mind, there's always alternatives. It's always, you, know, you can always look at things in a different way and ideally find things that will help you. It might not be as you originally planned, so to speak. And also, like, even, even little things that people don't see as, like, mental health helpful actually really are. So, like, as I said earlier on, I'm obsessed with chess. And the reason I love chess is because there's so many things going on. I literally cannot think of anything else. I really like reading as well. But the problem with reading is sometimes you'll, like, read the same sentence seven or eight times because you're actually thinking, oh, I've got to put the washing on. I really should. Oh, I never called that person. Whereas if you can find things like that, like I love playing on the PlayStation as well, because it really does immerse me in something completely else and I can't think of anything else. Yeah, definitely. When you talk about reading, what kind of books, I'm not saying have helped you spiritually or anything like that, but what kind of books do you read to keep that focus? I'm very much the same. Unless I'm reading a book by a former paratrooper or former SAS soldier, my mind will wander. So what about you? A book that in, like, emphatically changed my life was Yes Man by Danny Wallace. So I read it when I was <clears throat> 17 and I love it. And for anyone that's not familiar, basically, he is an incredible guy that goes and says yes to everything unless it is illegal, immoral, or will put someone else in harm. And he ends up all over the world. And I think at a time when everything felt a bit big, everything felt a bit intimidating, and I felt too tiny and small to have any control of my own life, reading about someone that was entirely out of control and not only enjoying that, but actually encouraging that was brilliant. And it's incredibly 
funny. It's incredibly stupid. It's incredibly uplifting, but not in a chicken soup for the soul way, just in a very laddish, fun way. So I think that in particular, that book was just brilliant for me. Yeah, I would definitely add that to my reading list. It does sound, again, really fascinating. It does just saying yes to everything is that's something we don't do enough as people in general, I think. And it's really good that the, the narrative, and I won't ruin it, comes uh, when he's, uh, you know, so he's about his, his 30s and he's, he's, he's worried about so many things that I think we all worry about, no matter what age you are, of like, who am I? What am I doing with my life? Where am I going to be? And he's really honest and really open. And I haven't seen the Jim Carrey film because I refuse to, because I think sometimes films like over something that's so sacrosanct, I'm like, no, I don't want to ruin that. So I, I, it might be good. I don't know. But I personally love that book. Yeah, definitely. That's a great recommendation. Just from my perspective, book that I've read is by someone called Neil Strauss, and it's called The Game. And it's basically a book about chatter artists, they're pickup artists. But there's so much more to it about the mindset, about the how you see yourself and confidence that that's why I read it rather than the pickup techniques. I don't know if you're familiar with the book. I am very familiar with the book, um, but I've never read it. So that's, I've just written that down here. I'm going to get that. Yeah, definitely. It is, you know, the mindset tips and the way you see yourself and everything, it does but blow your mind a bit it really like, obviously it's good tips for going to bars and stuff like that as well but it's the mindset side of things it was actually suggested to me by a guest i had on the first series of the podcast and he said it changed his life and then it's like yes and i don't think it would have that much of an impact but it really does so that's the only book with the exception of former sas soldiers that i read really yeah, I think that's always good. And I quite like the, the caveat of like, I always read SAS soldiers books. I think that's brilliant. Yeah, I, I don't know why, but that's what I get, you know, it's particularly like I've read all the ones from the SAS Who Days Wins on TV. I've read, you know, um, Ant Middleton, Jason Fox, um, Ollie Ollerton, Mark B B B Billy B Billingham's book. It is one that's definitely had the most impact on me because Mark's words are always always a little bit further that's his mentality whenever you're doing something always go that little bit further and th those words have stayed with me and that's what really kept me going if I'm doing something I think you know always that little bit further so that's what I try to pass on to my listeners well that's the wisdom I like to share that's brilliant uh, so Dave now as we come towards the end what are you doing at the moment as well as obviously your, your comedy you're working on what else what are you, are you been occupying yourself with? What have you got planned? So I am currently, uh, I'm currently working on this comedy course for people that are overcoming things. It's like six weeks, which is huge. And sort of putting that together, that's taking a lot of work. I'm writing this show called Underdog, which should be at the Brighton Fringe and hopefully going to Edinburgh as well as all different fringes <clears throat> throughout. I'm also secretly, but not so secretly, working on next year's show, which actually uses comedy to engage people with philosophy so i want to do like basically horrible histories for philosophy which i am so excited about so i know you're working on it honestly can't tell us too much but how about how are you approaching that but that does sound like something i've not heard before which i really like i i love philosophy so i did philosophy at university and i adore it i think it's one of the most engaging fun and funny things i've ever done but i think the problem with philosophy is that people always think about you know fusty bearded white men that you know drink red wine and that's just not true because some of them drink lager as well so i'm trying to kind of change that perception and make people realize that like actually philosophy is something that we do on a day-to-day -day basis and some of the ideas that are out there can genuinely transform your way of seeing the world that does sound fascinating and are you able to share any insights into how philosophy has changed the way you see some things that maybe everyone can relate to well yeah i mean a really good point i mean this makes you sound like an absolute but I uh, a couple of years ago did a show about how I uh, turned vegan and that was purely that was a direct result of doing 
philosophy. And there's this like 15th century philosopher uh, called Spinoza. And basically he done come up with this idea that basically said um, that we have an essential substance, right? So uh, basically everything is one thing Now you can call that. I personally believe in the big bang. You could call that God. You could call it whatever you wanted. Right. So it's kind of like Lego. Everything is made out of one thing. It's just different shapes. And he said within that essential substance, there are two essential natures, sentient and non-sentient. And I kind of like, you know, I believe in the Big Bang, so everything comes from one thing. Is there sentient and non-sentient things? Yeah, to a greater and lesser degree. And so I just decided, you know what, like actually, I kind of see sentient as a bit of a higher being. So I would prefer not to eat that. So that's why I became vegan and that's been a huge um sort of had a huge impact on my life because i spend most of my time now apologizing to people for being vegan <laughs> i like what you say apologizing how have you found the transition to being vegan it's tough but anyone that tells you it's not is uh, no bollocks being vegetarian i find quite easy it's the cheese that i mess with vegan <clears throat> but i've been doing it for the past four years now on and off i'm absolutely nowhere near perfect at it but the new cheeses that are coming the new meat products the plant burgers are so much better than they were now that i think in 10 15 years time being vegan is going to be like being vegetarian is now yeah i agree with, and it is actually quite nice food as i'm not myself but my mother is vegetarian and she's also recently become lactose intolerant which has made her practically vegan and something like we're having a sunday lunch and she's having these things that isn't meat and like me and my dad have tried them and they're actually really nice oh they're great linda mccartney sausages and burgers brilliant and via life cheese if you can get it it's dairy free and it's incredible I will make a note of that to, to send it to, to my mom later, see if she can find something. But yeah, it sort of it puts things into perspective. As you know, as a household now, we still eat meat, but we don't eat a lot of meat, and it's not as scary as everyone seems to think. Like, obviously, I, I don't like to stop completely, but it's not as bad as people make out to be. I think it's the thing. And actually, you know what, like, you know, with the environment and, and blah, blah, blah. If everyone just had like, say, a meat, a meat free day or whatever, no, you know, no one needs to give up meat completely and sort of kill anyone that ever's even thought about eating a sausage. Like if you just had one meat free day, if we all did that, then I think it would make a, a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you probably get the jokes all the time, but the best kind of vegan are the ones like yourself who you can't tell a vegan until you say. You're not yeah, changing yourself to pigs and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> I think, to be honest, I feel the same way about veganism as I do Extinction Rebellion. Like, look, no one thinks that we need more global warming. No one thinks that we need to screw up the planet more. But as soon as you sort of say, yeah, I care about the environment, people are like, oh, what are you going to do? Glue yourself to a train? You're like, no. And I think vegans are absolutely like that. It's really interesting how many like vegans that I've met that you've never noticed. Sort of laddie, bodybuilder, loud people. But like, yeah, vegans is really interesting how it's changing. Yeah, I'm sure... Um... I was watching a show the, the other night, uh, like a panel show, and the boxer D David Hay was on. I'm sure he said that he's gone vegan. He's doing like a plant-based diet or something like that. Yes, so many people are. Like Mike Tyson uh, was vegetarian, and all of these different people that you just wouldn't believe. It's interesting. Yeah, and it just it goes to show that it doesn't have to be such a s stigma around it. Yeah, completely. Uh, so, my last question to you. Well, last planned question is what advice would you give to my listeners i know we've covered a lot of advice in this episode but i always end by asking my guests what is your best piece of advice and this can be related to absolutely anything my best people piece of advice and a lovely coping mechanism i haven't come up with already is when things get a bit too much when you get a little bit stressed you want a little bit of time out for five minutes or so you can watch <clears throat> and listen to wear sunscreen by baz lerman on youtube it just has every bit of advice i would ever give so if anyone needs time out don't listen to me listen to him <laughs> well yeah thank you for that now have you got any last words we've covered a lot in this episode 
we've covered everything from dogs to veganism to mental health and a lot of stuff in between. Well, I suppose I, uh, my, my only sort of thing, if people are mad enough to want to follow me and I'm, I'm on Twitter at Dave Chawner and my website is DaveChawner.co.uk uh, and if they want to follow me there, then that's where all of the info will be. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you for coming on the show. I've really enjoyed it as you've opened my eyes a lot personally. I never looked at anorexia that way and it's really, yes, Realize the huge stuff in it from a different perspective is and it's like your advice of looking at things differently. So thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing. I really enjoyed this episode. Cheers, mate. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Schofield Stories podcast. Without you, my incredible listeners, I wouldn't be able to do what I do. So I hope you know how much your support means to me. We're on a mission to strike the stigma and unmask masculinity and mental health. And just by tuning in and sharing this podcast, you are playing a key part. Schofield Stories, as always, is proud to support Stop Holding Back personal development charity for people who stutter, a charity and a cause very close to my heart. Finally, if you want more, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and the official Schofield Stories website, theschofieldstories.com. That's all from me today. I hope you really enjoyed this episode, and I can't wait to speak to you again soon. I've been Calm Schofield. You've been listening to the Schofield Stories. Bye for now. Your hostility makes me feel Running, running, running away from this I know you're jealous Cause I'm so close to this I shuffle, shuffle, shuffle away from it I don't make a fuss where people are hate on it Sometimes I have to find a GPS So I can rewrite I gotta be imprisoned Before I'm able to Break out